Hey there, this is Mason Gordon, and you're listening to Soilcraft's Regenerative Agronomy Podcast, where we aspire to bring transparency to farmers through education. And now we'll head over to the studio where you'll meet the team and we'll introduce this episode's topic. All right, welcome back here to the studio and uh, here with the guys, Trent Graybill, Denver Black. And here we're having a, a special guest on the show today. Craig Harding. Yes, Craig. We're having a lot of fun with him the last couple of days. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you. All right. We'll start out. We're going to kind of make this a little bit about Craig, who he is, and we're going to ask him some questions. So Craig, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I was born just outside of Seattle when I was about 10, moved to Alaska before moving back to the East Coast and being involved in business. And so that was my background before going to Africa. Yeah. Good. I forgot to mention you're the director of Riverside Farm in uh, Kafui, Zambia. Yeah. Yeah. So been doing that for almost six years now. And it was a deep dive from the business world into agriculture. And they're you know, we're a public benefit organization. So basically, it's like a nonprofit here. We use agriculture to help fund the operations of running schools and educational programs there in Zambia. Yeah, good deal. So this is a little bit of a love-hate relationship going on here. So one of the reasons Craig is here, we'll talk a little bit about that. Denver, maybe you should tell a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's, so I met Craig, physically met him just this fall, fall of 2021, I guess it would be. So I ended up going to Zambia in 2019. I felt a distinct call to go to Zambia in 2018. So after visiting Zambia and seeing the way things are there with food insecurity and poverty, man, it was just heavy on my heart. And I felt called there ever since. And so I was very much looking for an opportunity to make a difference, you know, and albeit small, I wanted to do my part. And so in so doing, I came across an incredible Zambian dear friend of mine, Abel Hangoma. He's known as the radical farmer in Zambia. And he is, uh, he's a man of ambition, integrity, and talent. And I've been privileged enough to partner with him, to share with him, you know, ideas and concepts to help him get a start, a little bit of a start financially. Really just got a chance to participate to help him do what he would have done without me, but maybe help accelerate that a bit, you know, which is true with all of us. You know, where would any of us be without someone that's willing to reach out, mm -hmm. partner with us that believes in us and, and help us get over that and that first hump or whatever. But I mean, so doing, you know, I, I got to know Abel and in talking to him, the more I talked to him, he says, you know, I need to introduce you to Craig. You and Craig, you say the same things. And I said, okay, sure, I'm, I'm game with that. And so we exchanged, introduced us on WhatsApp and exchanged uh, credentials and, and whatnot. And so we started talking and soon realized, oh, wow, this Craig guy, he's, wow, he's, he is really interested in regenerative agriculture. And he listens to some of the same podcasts I listened to. And he was very interested in what we were doing here at Soilcraft, uh, especially talking about sap analysis and some of the things dealing with nutrition and disease resistance. And so the more we talked, the more we talked basically and became good friends. And so I went to visit this last fall in 2021, in October, 2021, I had the opportunity to stay there at Riverside Farm and talk shop with Craig, visit the farm, and then go meet Abel in person for the first time as well. And really it was incredible because it served as an opportunity. I really wanted to take my wife, Amber, to show her what God had shown me. But I wanted an opportunity to do so where she was comfortable and there was some accommodation there. And, and Riverview Wellness Center at Riverside Farm provided just that very comfortable setting with a beautiful view over the Kafood River. Anyways, in so doing, boy, we hit it off, Craig and I, and 
met some incredible farmers there that he's friends with in Zambia. And, you know, God, as he does, works out plans that are much larger than any schemes we had. And so anyways, I'll be joining him soon, September 9th. I head there to work doing consulting there at Riverside, as well as several other prominent farms in Southern province in Zambia. Yeah. So Craig's here visiting and, and he's, he's been on guard because <laughs> he makes him mention that love hate. He's, uh, you can't help but love him, but, uh, yeah, I don't think people are super thrilled that I'm, I'm just leaving. So yeah, yeah. He's, he's taken a pretty, and Denver has been an integral part of our team for a couple of years now, three years. I can't remember how long four. it's been. I'm flies. No, surely not four. Uh-huh. Anyways, so Craig's here and taking him away. And so, no, we're thankful to see him go and see him live out what God's called him to do. That's what we desire every person to be able to do here on our team. And so, Craig, tell us a little bit more about Riverside Farm and what you're doing there. Sure. So we grow wheat, soybeans, and bananas. We've got about 3,000 acres of land, of which it's not all developed. We're looking forward to developing some more of that. Yep. On the Kafui River, so water source out of the river. Climate, you know, much of the year it's like growing in a greenhouse. You got the water to add, you got sun and and plenty of it, and then you have a distinct rainy season. And so we have that. And yeah, I mean it's it's interesting how we got here. So Riverside for years had what we call the scientific gardening program. And it was, you know, a very prominent leader in the green revolution training in the country. We were training people, they were going all over the country, and it was, you know, you dump the nitrogen on, you get a huge response and it looks good until it doesn't. And over time, you know, we had Melinda Gates came, the first president of the country came to see what was going on. And here we are, you know, that was late, late eighties, early nineties. And we're looking at a different direction and you say, how does that happen? You know? And so we were the first commercial banana farm in the country. We weren't particularly good at it at the time when we got started, but we were the first ones to do it commercially there. And so we, we started down this path of using heavy synthetics and we're going down that road. And so when I came, the f- former director had been very involved in putting the farm back on track as far as making it back to being profitable. I mean, one of the challenges we certainly face there in looking at alternative methods of agriculture is the economics. You know, you got to make a profit in agriculture or pretty soon, you know, you we, we joke mm-hmm. that we have one nonprofit, we don't need two. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the challenge really came with how do you change what you're doing and why would you change it? So looking at, or at least for example, organic systems, you know, in Africa, people are fortunate to eat often. And the idea that you're going to pay a premium for something that potentially costs you more to grow isn't a reality or hasn't been a reality for for many years. And so we struggled with what, you know, do you look at it? How do you look at it? And I began to listen. I had a, had a friend come out from California who introduced me to some podcasts and he's like, you need to listen to these. And I'm like, listen, you know, we're not organic. It's not real. You got to be pragmatic in, in some of these things. You can't jump in with both feet. I've seen guys do it. One of the former directors tried without proper nutrition. And, and so we got to a point where I'm, I'm listening, but I'm like, I don't know how this works. And then one day we had sprayed in our soybeans a selective herbicide for, for an amaranth, a weed that we had coming through. And my guys call me up and they say, hey, we're out here scouting. You need to come out here. We need to, we need to spray the soybeans. You got semi-loopers in there. And so I'm like, well, let me come see. And so I come and here's the amaranth that's been sprayed, more effective than the soybeans. And they're stripping it to a skeleton. And the soybeans aren't being touched right next to it. I mean, selective mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. here, here through the field. And I said, they're right. That nutrition impacts pests and disease. And so I started looking at that and started listening and reading. And I started realizing we have to start changing what we do. And there's something to 
modifying it. So it, going into that regenerative program saved us a ton because we were, we were spraying two, three pesticides a year in soybeans. And we've moved to the point where in the last three years, I think we've sprayed once. And it was a, com- oh. it was a combination of changing what we do on the nutrition side, saying, let's, let's look at nutrition as a, as a repellent to disease and also managing thresholds properly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know how it is as a farmer, you go out there and you see holes in leaves and you're like, no, <laughs> perfectly, you know, no, no holes, no. And listening to some of the people talking about, hey, the economic thresholds and when does biology begin to sort things out on its own and like getting to be patient and say, okay, I see some holes, but let me not panic. I'm going to be prepared, but not panic. And in that process, you know, it really opened my eyes to it. And then we went to bananas. Mm-hmm. And so when we went to the bananas, we're putting down MOP, getting tons of salt, tons of chloride. We're going to synthetic nitrogens that are high in nitrate. And we have aphids. And, you know, the aphids are carrying a viral infection that, that's significant. And so then to solve that problem, which I then find out we've kind of created, we're putting on, you know, imidacloprid in large quantities. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars a year in, you know, neonic pesticides because I had to mm-hmm. before we didn't. And then you find this disease is all of a sudden, and it's, you know, it's, it's economically you know, crippling. I mean, it almost wiped out the farm. And so now we're looking at like, how do you start to pull back and change what you do? And so Trent here shared a book, Healthy Crops by Chiboso. And, you know, I've been looking at different things, bits of pieces of, of information and then I read that book and I was just like hitting myself. I'm like, <laughs> what? You know, and as we went through it, you know, I started to realize that, you know, as I go back, taking the bananas, for example, and begin to walk through what I was doing, I was paying tens of thousands of dollars to fix a problem that I had created because I thought I was doing something cheaper. Mm-hmm. So here I am, I'm, you know, using MOP instead of SOP. Why? Yeah. I mean, it's half the price yeah. or at the time, at least it was, but I'm not buying just potassium, I'm buying what? Chloride. chloride. Tons salts. of chloride and tons mm-hmm. of salts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm seeing that going up and uptaking the plant that add on the free nitrates. And now I've got the aphids. And then I'm, you know, putting imidacloprid in. And now what am I doing? Well, now all of a sudden I'm getting the aluminums and I'm getting the factors that are just tipping it over. And so now it's like, okay, how can we begin to use nutrition using things like silica, using things like humic acids, fulvic acids, you know, these products to try to start affecting the nutrition and change things. And we're not there. We're a transitional conventional farm. But I could see that as I was dealing with the salts and dealing with the chlorides and dealing with the nitrates and then fixing the problems I made with the imidacloprid, I was just continuing to disturb the protein and the photosynthesis going into the plants and calling aphids. And so as we look at that, how do we solve that? And, and as I was reading the book, I went to the chemical room we have and I started pulling chemicals off the shelf. I'm looking at labels and I'm like, you know, fusilid uses, you know, lists all the, the uses for fusilid. And the last one for us is ripening of sugarcane and, you know, modus, you know, growth regulators, you look at the hormonal herbicides and it's just like, wow, we've known this all along, but nobody wanted to say, mm-hmm you're affecting protein synthesis. Mm. And that's what's leading to ripening of sugarcane because you're stopping the translocation from photosynthate into protein, which causes a huge you know, increase in sugar. It also causes aphids to show up, which yeah. they have a huge problem with aphids in the sugar in the country. And so 
tying that all together, it was just like, and then looking at the labels and it's like, no, they know like it's right here. It says, you know, mm-hmm. use it for sugar cane ripening. Why? Because it's doing that. And so like realizing that really has put me on a path of acceleration to say, we got to do something significantly different going forward. Yeah, that's good. So you started on one paradigm and it sounds like your whole paradigm has shifted completely. So we know what your farm looked like a little bit before. What are you doing now? What does it look like now? And what are some of the practices that you're... Yeah. I mean, so we're literally, I told Denver, I said, when we come, I mean, you know, everything's on the table because, you know, one of the curses I have is I have no background and experience in agriculture significantly. My background's in business. So I'm looking at bottom lines, looking at decision-making, but I don't have that depth of, of agronomic experience. But the blessing to it is I'm not married to anything. Mm-hmm. I don't have any reputation to, to defend tied to a product. And so I told him, I said, listen, everything's on the line. We can do anything and everything. Now we can't do it all to the whole farm at once. We'll do block trials, but you know, let's try it. And so I think we're going to look at significant ways to try to begin leveraging both changing some of the inputs that we've done, as well as doing additional biological and, and stimulating bionutrients to see if we can't pull back and eliminate the imidacloprid, doing some of these things to just stop buying problems. I get enough naturally. I don't need to start paying for them and then pay for more to fix the problems that I, that I have. And so looking at that, we're in the next year setting up a bio lab to be able to do cultures of biology to use in soybean production and some of the other field crops setting up some labs for tissue culturing so we can tissue culture on farm instead of out of the country so that we can use more intensive practices. We can put, whether it's short cycling of crop to reduce disease pressure, some of those things to completely change how we do it. And so, yeah, it's going to be more different than it is similar within the next couple of years. Yeah, that's great. Guys, jump in and ask questions as as you feel. But just over what you've seen, some of these changes and putting regenerative agriculture into practice here, uh, what are some of your biggest wins from working regeneratively? Yeah, I mean, certainly the one I mentioned, soybeans. So, you know, we moved to a no-till system. And for us, soybeans is a double crop. So we grow wheat, harvest wheat in September. And then by November, December, you're beginning to plant soybeans. And so in the past, we used a compact disc harrow after ripping and you know, you just have challenges. If you get rain, you know, it's beautiful seed bed, nice seed soil contact, but rain. And so I think it was two years ago, we had compact disc harrowed and, you know, I get into the field like 200 feet, bam, rain comes 10 days later, I'm planting because I can't even get in the field. And so going to the no-till, you know, two days later, I can get in the field and plant because the soil structure has been maintained, that flotation is there. And so that's been huge. The number of passes that we eliminate from a fuel and tractor use standpoint, I mean, it's huge amount of passes mm-hmm. every year. And so moving to that has been, been economically great and changing the pesticide situation, not being so trigger happy and spending more money on keeping things alive than killing it. And that's kind of where my mind paradigm is at now is really default is let me spend my resources creating things that make life instead of things that take away something in life. Not that I want weeds. That, yeah. That's not the point. But the point is, is let's find a way to invest in something that actually gives back. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. seems like some of this, a lot of this is coming back to something that we talk about quite a bit here. And that is good management. Something we say is you can have the best products 
all day long and go apply those. But if you have terrible management practice, we say that all the time with growers, terrible managers, and you put out a great program and it doesn't work very well. So how much would you say that you experience that? How much is does it come down to good management? It's huge. You, you can walk from one farm to the next, from one field to the next, and product neutral, if you don't take care of your crops, you don't do the things on time, you don't scout, you don't pay attention, it's going to cost you and it will cost you largely your margin. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the reality. The difference between nothing and a good margin is oftentimes the management. And so we're very intensive with that, with consulting, with the technology, using a variety of things, even with some of our conventional practices and some of our, uh, you know, foliar stuff, we're using, you know, drones to put it on the field. So we reduce the compaction in the wet season, satellite imagery for leaf areas, you know, just so you can see where you have problem spots. So using the technology to help you identify and build your biology, I think is, is an important use of technology, maybe an appropriate use of technology. And I think the other area we had a big win in was, yeah, between the no-till and the soybeans, obviously it was the chemical reduction plus the you know unit use that was reduced. And so I think for us, those are the first two big ones that we have fruit in hand. Mm -hmm. I can see we're on the edge with some even more significant breakthroughs, but those two are the ones that are in hand. I was there on the farm, both in the fall and then in February. And so I had the distinct privilege of being able to see the amount of wheat residue that was on the center pivot post-harvest, which was, I mean a lot of stubble. And, you know, most guys would, you know, probably panic and decide to work that in. And you went ahead and said, no, I know this is highly valuable to me. I know I want to do no-till, but I do need to deal with this residue. And, you know, when I was there in February looking in the soybeans and I pulled them apart and looked down, I could still find some stubble, but it was largely already broken down. Can you talk a little bit about the change you made in management uh, post-wheat, you know, prior to seeding soy? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's tricky with soybeans because they're so soil, you know, soil surface compact to seed sensitive. You know, it's a little scary when you jump in on a high residue field and it's like, man, if you mess up your, it's hard to, I mean, there's compensation, but there's not that much. If you don't get the seed population right, you're laying it on the line yield wise. And so, and you're, you're seeding with this drill. Yeah. Right? You're yeah, using a 1590 even... disc drill. So it's, you know, you got a little bit less closing, you know, option. And, and so, yeah, it's a, bit, a little bit scary, but when we did that, we was chatting with Denver and it's like, okay, I know that we can do some things to digest straw. And you know, the, the, the answer locally I was getting was, yeah, no problem. Put on some more nitrogen and everybody knows what the price of nitrogen is. You know, then it was expensive, but it's, you know, even worse now, but that was a default. Yeah. Put on some more nitrogen. And yeah, I mean, that's right. But I'm, I'm in a country where, you know, the average farm has got something like 0.8% of organic matter left in it. Now we have more than that, but like, I feel like we don't have nearly enough. And so, so did the idea to dump nitrogen on and burn out some more carbon in the process? Yes, I'm going to get the straw residue, but I'm also going to, you know, burn out. I'm like, there's got to be a better way. And so in chatting with him, we put down fish emulsion, we put down a kelp product. We also put down fulvic and humic acids. And within days, at the application of water on top of that, you could pull it open and you could see the fungal hyphae everywhere. I mean, just throughout the straw. And immediately that's breaking down those lignans. So like when we went into no-till, and it was actually our first time to no-till soybeans because of this issue. I could never get past the residues. And last year, you know, I didn't get my growth regulants on time. And so we had super long straw. And so there was a lot of extra straw 
and it was laid down because it was, you know, once you have it laid down, you're going to be cutting it low because you have to get it off the ground. And so just was like, man, this is not the year to try this. But when we did that, we immediately saw the breakdown beginning and the straw was not gone. When we went to, to put it in, let the pivots dry off a bit, went ahead and went in with down pressure and we were still going through straw, but the difference was it was weakened. So you could cut through it without having pinning everywhere. And so huge, huge difference on residue control. And then did you see any difference, would you say, in the soybeans? I mean, you know, one thing I see and a difference, you know, you, you mentioned the carbon. So you add, add nitrogen, you change that C to N ratio and you can burn off the carbon. Like you say, the stubble disappears, but so does the carbon. Yep. But, you know, something else you mentioned is you saw hyphae immediately. And that's when we choose to try to leverage biology, particularly fungi, there's a lot of mineralization that goes on. And so... You know, we know you're not only retaining that carbon as exchangeable and, and stable soil carbons, but there's also mineralization, which means we're going to get some of those trace elements and whatnot we haven't been getting. So have you been able to observe anything in the soybeans health or in that subsequent crop, you know, or even the following yeah. know, wheat after that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the early soybeans looked great. We had a dry season to begin with, got it in. And, you know, in the past, you, we didn't really think a lot about, you know, the carbon, the, the carbons, the organic matter and calcium in soybeans. But, you know, the more you research it, the more you realize those are like primary food sources for a leguminous crop. I mean, significant. And so we were able to go in and add some early calcium to affect the growth early make sure we did our inoculant. We even did a little bit of an experiment with inoculation where we, we put the inoculant on seed dress, but then we came back in two to three weeks later and we put that inoculant back in and we actually saw the nodulation go from, you know, just around the, the seed, the top major branching roots to going through the whole profile or a significant portion of the profile that was there, you know, three weeks in, which is significantly more. And so the nodulation was up, the color was great. Everything went really well. And then we added calcium again with some molybdenum just as the flowers were beginning on the, on the soybeans. And our pod set was one of the best pod sets we've ever had. It held through heat, really, really significant. And so that calcium was, was huge. So that's the good part. The bad part is I don't like to broadcast into the crop because we like to use the drone if we have to use something to keep the tracks out. And so I'm like, okay... I don't want to buy tech grade SOP. So I bought MOP. <laughs> bought the MOP, put the MOP on seven days later, semi loopers. You could see the chloride in the leaves. You get that nice part potassium, part chloride, that, you know, whitish blue color. And I'm like, man, I haven't had to spray in two years. I had to spray, but I knew why. And so yeah. this year I'll be putting SOP on, even if it costs me a little more because I made up for it, poisoning something and killing yeah. it instead of investing in something that was nutritional. Mm -hmm. I saved money. Well, you didn't save money. You saved money now and you right. cost yourself money and yield later. Down the road, yeah. Pay now or pay and later. Exactly. So that was the experience, both good and bad, of, yeah. you know, beginning to keep your hands out of the cookie jar. <laughs> chemical disasters. Yeah. <laughs> so you made a comment earlier on your wheat and putting on growth regulators. Yes. What's the reason for that? And then will you be doing anything differently after? Yeah. So book? I'm still on, on pulling the thread of how to go away from those things. You know, we, we plant a quite a high density wheat because we're, we're growing basically a spring wheat. We plant at the end of April, the last couple of days of April. And by the 15th of September, we're harvesting 
a high yield crop. So it's super fast. And with that, we tend to get a lot of vegetative growth, lots of water because we're under the pivot. And so it's a struggle. You'll get tall wheat, you get super winds on, you know, when you're putting down lots of water to ripen during the grain fill stage and you can just lay it over. And so it's like, okay, you lose a ton of probably literally a ton per hectare of, of grain when you have that lodging. And so we've done growth regulants, but looking at it, I know that I'm affecting that protein synthesis and I'm causing myself additional pressure. So right now I'm in the process of saying, well, I don't know how to completely get rid of it. I do know that we've learned that copper and silica can impact that factor. And I've seen while we've done the growth regulators this year, we have put in silica and you can see, you know, last year when we had nice green growth, tall, but it was more rank growth. It was really green, soft. This year you hit it and it's like, it's like hitting broom bristles. I mean, nice, stiff growth. And so my hope is to experiment with seeing if I can do a, a half pivot with copper and silica in place of the, re- of the regulants. So I'm not having that factor. And in the other ones, while I'm waiting to see how it works, do some of the kelps and some of the other things to, to help mitigate because sometimes we don't know how to solve elimination completely yet. But if we can at least say, how do we mitigate the impact to remove those things out? And so, yeah, certainly something we're looking at. Yeah, it's good. Any other questions, guys? Keep going. I would say something I'm looking forward to is, you know, we have the distinct pleasure of being able to work at a commercial scale, but we also have the opportunity to be working with the smallholders and the emerging farmers in Zambia around us. And we all know the pressures we're faced in agriculture and in commercial production agriculture, but the smallholders and the emerging farmers in the developing world, I would argue, feel it as much or more. And they're continually under the pressure too of influence. They're looking for answers. They want to feed their families. They want to be successful. And you know, to us, we talk about success in in margin and profitability. And that's great. We should. But to a lot of these farmers, when they're talking success, they're talking about having food on the table every day. And so, you know, I get so excited about the progress we're making here, but being able to share this with our neighbors being able to bring prosperity to people who are starving literally and feeding people. And then also keeping in mind, I mean, if you look at the numbers, the world is fed predominantly through small acreage. It's not fed predominantly by large acreage. And so I know that's something I'm looking forward to. Maybe you have something you might want to add to that as far as. Yeah. I mean, going full circle on the our unfortunate leadership in the Green Revolution is, you know, we've had some, some teachers we've had involved. And I remember a couple of years ago, he was beginning to teach in our old traditional program. And then we started saying, Hey, I, you know, let's put some livestock integration in. And so he comes to me and, you know, he says, Hey, you know, I took a degree at the, you know, the university and like, this is what you need to do. And I remember at one point I was talking to him, I said, no, no, this is what I want to do. And, you know, like a lot of the Joel Salatin kind of style model. And he's looking at me so funny. And I finally said, listen, pretty much whatever they taught you, I'm going to do the opposite of it (laughs) because the math isn't working. Mm. And, and so we began to do experiments. We built some sheep tractors. So we have these mobile pens that can go between rows or, or behind chicken tractors in like a three-day to five-day delay going across pasture lands. Amazing how the, the nitrogen and the spread, the handling of the chickens behind the sheep, picking up the parasites. Like it's a significant symbiosis, if you want to say, in that process. And so we began to play with some of these things. And the guys are looking at it going, what in the world? But come this year... He walks into my office and he says, you know, I think I get it. 
I think I'm ready to try something different. And so this this coming year, you know, we we're going to change things significantly in the approach that we're teaching. And so one of the things that that we're looking at is, you know, up to this point, you had the whole factor. I was talking a little bit about the organic system is like, how do you get it to be economical? And this year, a bag of fertilizer for a basal fertilizer for maize is $60 a bag. A smallholder cannot afford to buy four bags of that to grow a hectare of, of maize, plus buy another four bags of, of urea, that's going to be what, 70 or $80 a bag. Mm-hmm. They can't do it. And so now the whole model has changed where now they can't afford not to be, for lack of a better term, organic. And so I told them, I said, listen, the moment has come Hmm. where the economics has shifted in Africa to the point where that isn't going to be an option to even do conventional agriculture for many people. And so um, he's beginning to set the system up where we're going to go from, you know, basically 100% or maybe let's say 90% green revolution style teaching and 10%, well, there is this other thing to 80 or 90% regenerative agriculture models. And yes, people need to be aware but changing that so that we're, we're, and that's focused directly at smallholders. It's directly at smallholders from the village level to people who are working for their relatives who have bought farms, who live in the town, but they're the ones helping run small cash farms. And so I'm really excited about that. And the opportunity to do stuff that they, you know, like my guy, he was just like, this is crazy. You guys are always coming up with the crazy ideas, but now he's beginning to buy in and say, oh, you know, I'll find them, you know, have a car over there and they're brought got guys over there looking at what's being done and they're curious and they're asking questions so now it's like oh okay this is part of it and so i'm really excited to take that and then take some of the brewing and some of the jdom and some of the other other philosophies and put that back into the hands of smallholders so that they're you know no longer slaves to buying something they can't afford anyway and getting yields that are worse every year and it's like no this is bad dirt no it's bad management mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So I wanted to circle back real quick. You mentioned in your journey towards a different approach to managing your farm, you reading that Healthy Crops book by Francis Chaboso. Yep. What was it that you that grabbed a hold of you? And when you read that and was you were like, okay, this answers some of the questions I've had about this. This makes sense with what I'm seeing. What was the main thing that was like your aha moment? Yeah. I mean, like to a large degree, it really stemmed around pulling that bottle off the shelf and it clicking like, wow, this is changing what happens at the cellular level. And so if you change the cellular level of the plant, it's hard for me to believe that you aren't changing what what happens to the human health at the cellular level. And and that's full circle. So you're you're affecting the soil, which to some degree is, a, you know, an external stomach mm-hmm. for biology. You're changing what happens in animal gut. You're changing what happens in human in human health because they're the same thing, really. At the end of the day, I mean, you look at the biology that's in all three of those, and you can't tell me that you can change one and impact it so badly at the cellular level, change the efficiencies, change the the synthesis, the, and do all of that, and call the pests in because they're doing their job. You know, they're they're the mortuary attendants coming in to bury something that's diseased and sick that needs to be gotten out of the way so it doesn't hurt healthy plants and be fighting with them doing their job instead of, you know, building them up. And so looking at that, when I saw that, and and it just kind of painted the picture from the beginning to the end, this cellular process, you know, it really changed my mind. And, and it, I guess to not be too cynical, but maybe to be too cynical, like it just hit me 
everything that I've learned over the last six years has been a lie. Mm-hmm. And then I get, you know, Johann Zeitzman's book on cattle production. And, you know, I don't have a background in agriculture. So I went to the best people that I know in the industry to learn because I don't know anything. And I realized everything they told me was what they'd been taught. And it was all a lie too. Wow. Because it's, you know, it's, it's big animals, you know, slow maturing, you haul the manure, haul the feed. And you just start to realize it's like, wow, okay. And so now at this point, I'm, I would say I'm, I don't think I'm yet cynical, but I'm, I'm suspicious of, of <laughs> maybe we're not going back far enough to find out how it's supposed to be done. We're, we're, we're stuck with this, this system that's built around death and killing things instead of life and causing things mm-hmm. to live. And yep. so that's really what was the breakthrough was like, Somebody finally said what I've been hearing bits and pieces on podcasts, like this piece and that piece. And it's like, no, at the end of the day, your problem with certain synthetics, with fungicides, with pesticides, with herbicides, more often than not comes down to disturbance of the cellular process and the impacts that follow that. These secondary effects. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a paradigm shift at that point. You realize you can't keep doing that yeah. economically. Yeah, I, lo- I love the uh, the term. Nature doesn't produce garbage, only nutrients. And so everything in in nature, in life, is a cycle. One thing becomes food for another thing, becomes food for another thing, and it, it just continues in this big. And that comes back to that looking at everything from a living perspective. How do we stimulate and promote life rather exactly. than how do we kill the next problem? Exactly. And it's, frankly, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun for me to, you know, go out in the avocado trees we have for, for grafting in our nursery and have chickens running around with there. And my kids can carry the chickens and you've got the cows moving and you've got like bring back life Mm -hmm. into the system. To me, there's something special about that. Mm -hmm. There's this, you know, it's just like it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I like that. That's a perfect example of what I really admire about your management style and and really what's at the heart of i feel like riverside and and it very much it, it makes sense that you, that you found a home within the region philosophy because they're very one and the same which is a holistic approach right yeah. instead of instead of reductionism instead of a person as, as pieces as a mind and a soul and, and a body right it's one and instead of just bananas or wheat right no it's it's a farm as a part of an ecosystem and so really in a lot of ways what i see i see i see the beliefs that you have in all aspects of life really coming through through into your management and like you said before like everything's on the table i, I like that because i can see that being lived out in experiments you're doing and, and conversations we've had about it, looking at everything including you know agroforestry and centropic ag i mean because you know our country's, our world's problem, our country's problem, our county's problem is our problem. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the biggest problems in Zambia is deforestation. So how can we show our neighbors, you know, that we're serious about it and start planting trees? And we're not, you know, we can't just say, go plant trees because you should. We need to say, no, they're valuable. Well, how? Well, well yeah. How? Let's see. How can we put them into our system so that they're not only better for everyone, because they are, but they're really directly benefiting our production as well. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the fun experiments I've been playing with just in the last month is a experimental agroforestry project. And so, you know, looking at how do we 
try to design some more more closed loop systems, not completely closed loop, but largely where you're integrating the strengths of different levels of forestry and vegetables and fruit crops into systems that can then be used for certain on the small scale and maybe even on the larger scale um, to change the way agriculture is done. And I don't know, you know, as I as I look at it, I mean, I remember going out into the bananas and looking around and, you know, no worms, nothing, nowhere. Between the chloride, the salt and the metacroprid, you know, just completely earthworms, yeah. you know, no earthworms, nothing. And going out there at the beginning of rains and seeing, you know, millipedes by the thousands because they're the only primary, you know, decomposer working on residues in the area. And you look at that and you tell yourself, you know, I know this isn't right. Mm. And I think for a lot of farmers, I'm assuming that, you know, you hear stuff about different chemicals or your different practices. And it's like, look at, you know, you feel attacked. This is about me. I'm, you know, I'm not a bad person. I'm trying to do something that's good for my family. I'm trying to pay the bills and I'm trying to pay the bank. And I think that there's an opportunity we have, which is to walk out there and not be defensive and say, I don't have an answer for it, but I know it's a problem mm -hmm. and there has to be something better than this. Yeah. And I think if we do that and we get out of, you know, defense for the people that sometimes aren't well intended in their attack on what feels like our integrity <laughs> and instead say, yeah, honestly, this doesn't feel right to be killing everything, even if it's unintentional and I don't know how to do something different. So I think that's an opportunity just to, you know, dig deep crack out the internet, start doing research, read some books and find a way to do the next step. You can't fix it all at once, but you got to take the next step and maybe get one field and try everything at once because, you know, do you really know how it works if you don't have a holistic system to try risk something on doing it completely differently? And yes, adjust on the other things to doing it better. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. I, I think that's really important is to go out there and do something. And we like to, some of us like to have all, everything all figured out. It's like, we got to have an answer. We got to have it, you know, just perfect, the perfect management style, the perfect products. But what you're saying is we don't have it all figured out. And I don't think any of us here in this room would ever say that we're working with nature and we got a lot more to go. So go out there and try something. It worked great. Let's do it again. It didn't work. Whoops. Let's try something different. That's part of diagnostics. So being a, a living example here of someone who's transitioning a farm to regenerative agronomy practices, is there anything else that you would tell someone who'd be in your shoes, you know, a few years ago? Hey, read the healthy crops book sooner, not later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little heavy, but yeah. it's worth the investment of the time and effort to read it. Yeah. And I think if someone's in the animal production system, read Johann Zeitzman. I mean, it's going to pay you back in the pocketbook as well as in the soil health. Man, cattle, veld. Exactly. That one. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the, the name book. of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Anything else? No, I'm... Other pieces of wisdom. No, no I'm just super glad to be here today and, um, you know, glad to be borrowing Denver. And yeah. So <laughs> I don't think this is borrowing. Yeah, I borrowing. think this is a little more than well, borrowing. I'm trying to keep, make it for keeps, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show with us. It's been a ton of fun. And uh, so, yeah, we'll have to do it again. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. It's been another successful podcast. If you have any questions or a topic that you'd like to hear us address, please please email us at podcast at soilcraft.com. Until next time, thanks again for listening.